Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back today. My guest is Dr. Gabor Mate, a renowned speaker and best-selling author who is highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics, including addiction, stress, and childhood development. After 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience, Dr. Mate worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. His books include In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, Scattered Minds, The Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder, and with Dr. Gordon Neufeld, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. He's currently writing his next book, The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture, out later next fall. Welcome, Dr. Mate. Thank you, Roman. It's nice to be here. Peace on the Gabor. And just to make a yeah, um, so correction, the uh, the title of my book on ADHD, it, it, the original Canadian title was Scattered Minds, and you will look at the origins and healing. The American title is Scattered, How ADD Originates and What You Can Do About It. Now, that makes me think two things. One is that the American publisher didn't believe that the American public would understand the word mind, so they took that off the only for the same publisher later to come up with another book called Scattered Minds on ADHD, just to confuse things. Wow. But anyway, but in the States, basically they took my title, I gave it to somebody else. But but um, but they um, but the American title is Scattered, just for the American listeners. Yeah, and I thought about that. We had talked about this before, and I was also speculating that, you know, Scattered Minds might also imply that there's stuff in the mind that we can figure out and do where scattered, you're just sort of written off as like somebody scattered. And maybe, yeah. maybe they thought that's really what ADHD is right there. There's no more to it than just scattered people. I don't know. Yeah. That, that was my interpretation, but um, well, let's dive right Thank into you. it. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sure. Great. Um, so is ADHD, um, from your perspective, is it a real medical disorder? So, um, first of all, it, what it is, is the syndrome. So but by syndrome, we mean that it's a collection of, um, signs and symptoms. A sign is something that somebody can observe in you. Like if I listen to your lungs and I hear crackling, that's a sign. Uh, if you cough, that's a symptom because you're experiencing it. So the uh, syndrome is a collection of signs and symptoms. Um, so, you know, if you look at the major areas of ADHD, is diagnosed poor impulse control, acting out, uh, acting impulsively, blurting what's on your mind, you know, um, poor attention. So scattered attention, uh, tuning out, absent-mindedness, forgetting things, you know. And, and there may or may not be physical hyperactivity, restlessness, and so on. 
so it's a syndrome and and all that means is we, we've collected a bunch of behaviors and and we've called them something but there's a million reasons why people have trouble paying attention or be restless or have to, or or have poor memory or poor impulse regulation so just because we've called something by a name collected a bunch of symptoms it doesn't mean that there's a corresponding disease that everybody with those symptoms has there's all kinds of reasons why people behave that way at various ages that have nothing to do with any kind of brain disorder so we have to understand that so you can't simply diagnose somebody um and call and say that they've got this disorder that's the that's the first point so it's a syndrome but it could have a number of different reasons why people behave that way number one number two uh, for sure, some people, it is a lifelong, you can recognize it fairly early in life, and it stays with them. I'm one of those people. Whether it's a medical disorder is a different issue. Um, and we can talk about what I mean by that. But when I talk about a disorder, I mean it very literally. In all my own life, these traits of poor attention and, and poor organization and should see my desk like it's, you know, <laughs> uh, they create a lack of order. They create a lack of order in my life. My, my impulse regulation problems, addictive behaviors, these create a lack of order in my life. So in the sense that I talk about a disorder, I just mean it creates a lack of order. So it's something to be addressed but it's not a medical disease. And uh, here we get into a larger question that what do we mean by a mental disease? What do we mean by a brain, by brain disease? Now in ADHD, they say that it's the most heritable mental disease there is, and, uh, most genetic there is. Well, there's two problems with that. One is that there's a fair debate as to whether there's such a thing as mental disease. And we can talk about what I mean by that. Number one, number two, there's absolutely no proof that ADD is genetic or that any mental health disorder is genetic. There's no proof whatsoever, regardless of what science so-called so they, they bring up. So that the science behind the genetic view is um, lacking consistency and logic. And I'm happy to answer questions about that. So. What I'm saying is, is there something going on in the brain of the people with ADHD? Yes, there is. I know what my brain is like. It's hard for me to listen to a piece of music without tuning out after a few seconds, you know? So something's going on in my brain. Do I have a disease? That's a different question. Mm. So that's a long answer to a short question, but. I love it. No, that's great. And that kind of goes to my next question that I had, which was, you know, I agree with you that it's not genetic and this, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a, I have a hypothesis or a, a hunch yeah. or a claim and I'm seeing a lot of epigenetic research that clearly says, and you've said this many times, many times before in videos and, and lectures that, that the environment is really responsible for shaping our, our, our connections in the brain or our environment. So, so is it fair to say it's not genetic, but it's epigenetic, if that's the right term? something like a, a ADHD or stress or trauma, which we'll get into, but. Yeah, so 
to say that something is genetic is to say that there's certain genes that will cause a particular problem. So there are genetic diseases. There's one in my family, it's called muscular dystrophy. If you have the gene, you're gonna get the disease. My mother died with it, my aunt died with it. Um, other people in the family have the gene, they have the disease. That's genetic. Those diseases are very rare, very rare, like one in 10,000. Nobody's ever found a single gene that if you have the gene, you're gonna get ADHD. Nobody's ever found a group of genes that if you have this group of genes, you're gonna have ADHD. Nobody's ever found a gene that if you have this gene, you're gonna get schizophrenia. Nobody's ever found a group of genes that if you have these group of genes, you're gonna get schizophrenia. What they have found is that there's some genes, the more of them you have, the more than likely, more likely you're gonna have some mental problem or another. But there's nothing specific. This is, a, so, so they talk about things running in families, but things can run in families for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with genes. So let's just put the genetic argument aside. And I can talk more about it. There's these twin studies that everybody quotes that are absolute nonsense, scientifically. But the point is, there's no group of genes or single or single gene for any mental that if you have them, you're going to have a disorder. Furthermore, you can be diagnosed with ADHD or schizophrenia or anything else without having any of those genes. So what we can say about genes is not that they don't matter but that they don't determine mental health conditions. What they can create is a vulnerability. So that um, the more sensitive you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more you're gonna be affected by the environment. So for example, addiction, they, they, they talk about addiction as another genetic disease, total nonsense. There's no single gene or group of genes that if you have them, you're gonna be an alcoholic or a heroin addict or a sex addict or a shopping addict or an eating addict or anything else. But what there is, there are some genes that if you have them, you're more likely to develop these conditions depending on the environment. So you can have two people with exactly the same set of genes, or at least both of them sharing this set of genes, one of them will develop an addiction, the other will not, depending on what happens in the environment. In other words, it takes the environment to turn the genes on and off. And you can even have kids with genes that predispose them, that make them vulnerable for addiction, but if you give them better family environments, this has been done, their risk of addiction is no greater than that of kids who don't have the genes. So, the, so, so at the most, what the genes do is they confer susceptibility or vulnerability, but it still depends on what happens in the environment. So the answer is yes, ADHD is an environmentally determined condition, which is the only way you can explain why it's rising. Because genes don't change in a population over 10 or 15 or even 100 years. So if we're seeing many more kids now, something's got to be in the environment, something's got to be going on. Now, epigenetics is a part of that. So genes have to do with the DNA structure, which set of genes did you inherit? Epigenetics has to, be, has to do with how the environment turns the genes on and off. And, and that starts happening already in the uterus, in the womb. So we know that um, 
if you stress women or animals who are pregnant, their children will be more likely to have addictive behaviors as adults. Nothing to do with genes. It has to do with how the genes are turned on and off by the environment. Mm. But, but that's not all there is to it. Uh, environmental influence doesn't just have to do with epigenetics. It also has to do with adaptation. So um, to get to ADHD, the tuning out. Roman, if I were to become abusive to you right now, if I were to stress you right now, what would be your options? Well, one would definitely be ignoring or tuning out or just pretending it's not happening. Well, that would not be the first option. Uh, The first option might be reacting uh, with stress or anger. In other words, to protect yourself. Yeah. To go on the attack, you know, to to mount some healthy aggression. You can't talk to me like that. Mm -hmm. That's the first option, okay? There's another option. Pretending it never happened? No, you're... The, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the healthy options. That's the Swiss in me. I'm like, we're neutral. We're good. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You're saying another option, uh, a healthy option? Yeah, you could fight back, or what else could you do? If I'm threatening you, what else could you do? Uh, run away. Exactly. You, you, you could fight back, or you could... Uh, yep. If you couldn't do either, if you couldn't do either, now your mind will start tuning it out as a protection. That's the freeze, right? The fight. Yeah, yeah. Fight it's part freeze. of it's a, it's part of the dissociative freeze response, and and it's adaptive. You know, so mm-hmm. tuning out is an adaptation. It's not a disease. The question is, when do people have to adapt? It's when they're stressed. Now, what happens when young infants or children are in a stressed environment? And they're not stressed because the parents are bad or abusive or anything. They're just stressed because um, the parents are depressed or upset or they're fighting or they're in poverty or they're uh, this tension. The parents have unresolved trauma, whatever. Parents are busy, the parents are economic pressure. So there's stress in the environment. Now the baby can't escape or fight back. One of the things they can do is to tune out. But when is this happening? It's happening when the brain is developing. Because this is the other piece that people, we don't talk about enough, is that the brain develops an interaction with the environment. So which circuits develop in the brain? Like the impulse, like for example, no baby is born with impulse regulation. There's no just thing as a baby with impulse regulation. I have to pee, but I'm gonna hold it. <laughs> you know, or I'm hungry and I feel like crying because I'm hungry, but I don't wanna bother mom and dad. Right. They worked so hard all day. Nobody's baby is born like that. The, 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 you know, those circuits of impulse regulation have to develop. No baby is born with attention, focused attention. And uh, so that these circuits have to develop. Now, what we know now is that the brain develops an interaction with the environment. So what we're looking at in these mental health conditions, like ADHD, 
is not inherited diseases, but development that somehow got a bit distorted. Because the environment shapes the brain. The, the environment actually shapes, like, like, like in, if, if you came to me, uh, with the, you know, and, and I diagnose you with ADHD, I might give you Ritalin. I might give you Ritalin or Dex. It's not the first thing I would do, but I might, okay? What does Ritalin and, 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 and Dexidine do? They elevate the levels of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is the incentive um, motivation chemical in the brain. See, the problem with ADHD is not one of attention, it's one of motivation. A person with ADHD who is very interested in something, they can pay all kinds of attention. Yep. As, as I'm sure that you can verify, you know. Totally. You know, in fact, you can hyper-focus. But it's not the attention problem, it's a motivation problem in, in, in a significant way. So you came to me for ADHD, I give you the dexin or Ritalin, I elevate your dopamine levels, now you can sit there and focus, okay? But the dopamine receptors in the brain, they develop an interaction with the environment. So the more you stress people, the fewer dopamine receptors they're gonna have. You can take adult monkeys and separate them from the group, put them in isolation cages, then dopamine receptors will diminish over time. In other words, the brain interacts with the environment through a lifetime, but especially in early childhood. Put those monkeys back into the society, their dopamine receptors will come back. Unless they're bullied, in which case they stay low. So there's a dynamic interaction between the environment and the circuitry and chemistry of the brain. So you're saying uh, those come back, it's almost like saying that ADHD can be healed or quote-unquote outgrown, right? Changing the environment. Well, we know, first of all, that people do go with ADHD. Yeah. You know, know how, what happens? They, get, they finish school. <laughs> they finish school. They get out of school. They're no longer under stress and pressure. They get, now they have more freedom to choose what they want to do. Now, not everybody goes out of it. I certainly didn't in significant ways. But, but the people do, you know. And people also, as adults, they can change their brains in very positive ways. Mm -hmm. So the, the brain is not determined genetically. It, 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 its potentials are. But the circuitry, serotonin, like we say, serotonin, you know, depression is caused by low serotonin. There's no proof of that. Do you realize there's not a single study that has ever shown low serotonin in people with depression? <laughs> it's a wow. theory. It, you know, because we give people medications that elevate serotonin levels and they do better sometimes with depression, it must be due to serotonin levels, but no, it isn't. And serotonin receptors in the brain diminish when people are stressed. And they come back when people are in a more mm. easy environment. But, so to okay. say that uh, these brain conditions are due to um, uh, 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 inherited genetic problems with brain chemistry, it's like saying that if you have a headache and uh, you take an aspirin, you feel better. It's like saying headache is caused by a genetic deficiency of aspirin, right? Or, or if, or, or, or if you drink, have a shot of bourbon and and you feel um, um, more humorous, you can say that your lack of humor is caused by a, a brain deficiency of bourbon. You know, <laughs> bourbon deficiency disorder. Bourbon, bourbon deficiency disorder. <laughs> 
that's the level of medical thinking I'm telling you. That's how primitive it is. Wow, that, that literally just blew my mind. And I've sort of speculated this obviously during this process, but what I'm starting to hear is the stress, right? And, and often you call it, uh, and others, other experts call it trauma. So I just wanna go to um, a twofold question. One, isn't every human being gonna encounter stress and trauma, right? We can't really uh, uh, avoid it. And B, uh, why do some kids in the same household and let's just say for now similar environments get ADHD and others don't? Okay, well, that's, that's a good question. <clears throat> First of all, uh, no two kids grow up in environment. There's no, no two kids have the same mother and father. Now, I don't know, you, you have one child, is that right? I have two boys. Mm -hmm. Do you think they had the same mother and father? No. Yeah. So maybe you can explain what you mean by that. So it's not coming from me. Yeah. It, what I mean by that is that, first of all, they're both totally different uh, personalities they're, and they're different temperaments, right? Right. And one of them uh, sees me more like a playing buddy, like a bro. And the other yeah. one sees me more as like a cuddle daddy, you know, so there's different. They don't have the same, they don't have the same father. And so no two kids have the same parents. A, because each kid has a different temperament, so they experience you differently. And that temperament is partly genetic, partly intrauterine, but they come up with different temperaments. Mothers carrying babies will tell you that the babies have different characters already in the womb. Yeah. So one is more active, the other is more quiet, you know. Um, so, they, so, so that even if you could be the same mother and father, you, they still wouldn't have the same mother and father because they'd be experiencing it differently. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, one of them is a first child. That's a totally different experience than being a second child. The second child never has the insult of being displaced as, as the only one. Mm. But the first one does. On the other hand, the second child never has the experience of getting all the attention. So that, they, they, you know, they, secondly, thirdly, I know with our children, with my wife, we have three kids, the state of our relationship was at different phases when each kid was born. Mm. So the kids are born to a different environment. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds, I could go on, I mean, and on and on. Well, that, that answers it really well because. But, but no two kids are born in the same way. So that's the first. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first point. The second point is that they do have different temperaments, okay, so that they experience the environment differently. So, um, which I already made that point. So, A, the parents are not the same, the temperaments are not the same. No two kids grow up in the same household. And the kids with ADHD, who develop ADHD, they tend to be the Sens genetically more sensitive ones. So I, I said that the disorder is not genetic, but the sensitivity can be. We know that if you're born with certain genes, you'll be more affected by whatever happens in the environment. So if I yell, yell at a if I raise my voice at a kid who's highly sensitive, you know, they're affected. But if a kid is a bit more placid by temperament, oh, there's daddy yelling again. No, no, not that it's a good thing to yell at any kid. All I'm saying is that they'll experience it differently. Yeah. And the more they are, the more they, they'll want to tune out because it's more difficult for them. 
And these kids tend to be very sensitive to loud noises and environmental stimulation and all that. So that there's more reason for them to tune out. So again, no, no two kids grow up in the same home. Yeah, no, that's great. And do you, do you, from your experience, we often, and you, you as well, and other experts talk about prenatal stress, right? Yeah. Baby, babies in the womb. Um, how much more significant is prenatal stress compared to, say, medical trauma at birth or stress uh, as a young child or in adolescent? Is there like a kind of a, a, a comparison chart, will you, if like a mental one to say prenatal is more uh, da uh, damaging than, you know, during birth, after birth? Or how do you see that? I think the most important thing to realize is that humans are creatures of the environment and that at every stage of development, whatever happens, and they, the younger they are, the more affected, the more upriver it is, the more impact it'll have. So, um, but I don't want, I don't know that any studies have ever been done making the distinction, but the point is that, yes, already what happens to women during pregnancy has an impact on the child's brain development. Mm. and uh, dopamine levels and serotonin levels and, and stress hormone levels and how they react to stress. Now, kids with ADHD, they don't do very well when they're stressed. Some of them, some of that influence already begins in uterus. And mothers can be stressed without the mother even knowing it. And then we could talk about why, but, but the point is that prenatal stresses the vast literature now, how prenatal stresses affect the child. Perinatal issues, birth issues, is it a traumatic birth? Now, and there's increasing, in my new book, there's two chapters on prenatal influences and another chapter just on birth. Mm -hmm. Birth is hugely important. And the way people are bringing birth in North America is very unhealthy for the most part. Yeah. Very unhealthy. Women's needs are not respected. The baby's needs are not respected. It's way too technological, interventionist, um, stressed. And then in the United States particularly, they realize like one-fifth, one in every four women or five, I forget which statistic is, in the States, they go back to work two weeks within the baby being born. Wow. Now, the baby's meant to be with the mother for years. But at least for nine months, at least for a year. And uh, so what happens to a baby's brain when the most important attachment relationship all of a sudden disappears after two weeks for the whole day? Mm. And this infant never knows where this mummy that they rely on when they'll be back. It's a horrible shock to the baby. We're not even aware of it. We know it scientifically, but societally we're not aware of it. You know, and... That's the one point. What, what needs to be made clear here is that parents are not being blamed. They do their best. Yeah. The problem is they're doing so under increasingly stressed circumstances. So if you look at how human beings evolved, our present species, Homo sapiens, have been on the earth for, I think, 150,000 years, 200,000 years. Somewhere between 100 to 200,000 years. <clears throat> For 98% of that time, they lived in small hunter-gatherer groups 
where we had mothers being supported by the whole community. Yep. It was called allo mothering. Other mothers would come along, other uncles, aunts, older sisters, cousins. Now people are parenting alone in a home. And then very often they have to balance that with work. They're not even with the baby. The baby used to be with adults all the time. And our parents, because they have to go to work, they have to sleep train the baby, which means they have to ignore the baby's crying. Which is a terrible shock to the baby. Mm. So it's not a question of individual parents doing the wrong thing. It's a question of um, a whole society that doesn't respect babies' children's needs. Wow. I just, if I may interject, I have a, another twofold question. I'm trying wrapping my head around it right now. So this is kind of in relating to your new book as well. Um, we're raising a stressed and traumatized new society, right? Youth right now. How is that going to affect yeah. our culture, our, our world in the future? And the two part is one, if we medicate them until they're adults, the other, if we don't treat the trauma or if we don't heal the stress, what are we creating here? And what do you foresee is going to happen to our culture, to this world? Well, we're, we're already seeing it. If you look at the, the, the statistics, the number of kids being diagnosed with mental health conditions is going up and up and up. Autism, ADHD, um, so-called oppositional defined disorder, yep. which I can talk to you about. It doesn't even exist, but we're diagnosing <laughs> kids with it. Uh, not that there are kids, not that there aren't kids who are oppositional, but to call that a disorder is a whole other ballgame. Um, depression, anxiety, suicide rates are going up, self-harm rates are going up, eating disorders amongst kids, loneliness, isolation, internet addiction. You know, I mean, we're seeing what we're creating. Mm. And if you want to look at a traumatized society, look at your country on this election, you know, so that uh, the, the distrust, the hostility, the, you know, uh, the, um, the, the split. Confusion. You know, the, lack, the lack of civility, the, the confusion. Um, and what we've got is a highly traumatized society right now. Uh, it's cultural trauma. And you can see it in the culture. You can see it in the hypersexualization of children in the pop culture. You can see it in the violence in the pop culture, um, in the alienation. So that we're seeing it, you just have to look. Wow. Uh, so I'm looking forward to reading that new book, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm a very sensitive person that it's gonna land heavily because there's a lot of truth in there, I'm sure about if we're not in like, if we can't jump in now and change our course, it's getting heavier. It's getting heavier, yeah. Well, and, and, every, and everybody knows that. Now, now, your question about medication and so on. So, I think it's important to recognize when a child has got these issues and to address those issues. But how to address them is a different question. Like if you don't, you're just creating more problems for later on. And we know that, for example, people with ADHD have a much higher risk of addiction, much higher risk of addiction. There's a real connection between the two conditions. 
so that if we don't intervene in a healthy way, uh, we can certainly create problems later on. In, in, the, in the jail population, there's a higher percentage of people with ADHD than in the general population. Which doesn't mean that you're doomed to end up that way. Yep, exactly. It depends on how we handle it. Problem is we don't handle it very well. So how do we intervene? Well, the medical view says you've got this genetic brain disease, here's a pill. As a result, millions of kids in the States are getting stimulant medications and hundreds of thousands are getting antipsychotic medications at a very young age. They're even talking about medicating kids at two years of age. The antipsychotics I can tell you about, we have no idea what their long-term effect will be on the developing brain. What we do know is they can cause diabetes, metabolic syndrome, lethargy, and all kinds of problems. And we're doing this to kids because we don't know how to respond to their problems. It's easier just to sedate them with a pill. And by the way, if you're on Medicaid as a kid, your chance of getting an antipsychotic is four times greater as if you're not. Wait, say that again? If what? If you're on Medicaid in the States, as a child, you have a much higher risk of getting a, an antipsychotic because it's the simplest way to control your behaviors, just to sedate you, make you dull. Yeah. Now, the real question is, why is a kid behaving that way? And how do we address the, the real reasons? So if we can make a child feel safe and secure, I'll tell you, you don't, you don't have to give them antipsychotics. Yeah. But our kindergartens and our families and our schools, people are not taught how to make kids feel safe, especially these highly sensitive kids. So it's easier to medicate. Um, I myself have taken medication for my ADHD, including, I took very little with this most recent book, but two weeks ago, when I had one more chapter to write, and I was really, <laughs> up, against, and I was really up against the deadline, I was already four months behind. I woke up six in the morning, I took my dexedine, I sat in front of the computer and in one more, in one day I wrote 6,500 words and a really good chapter, final chapter, you know? Wow. I'm not against taking the medication when necessary, but for children, especially, they should never be the first line of treatment because if ADHD and the state of the brain and a child's behavior, oppositionality, whatever else, is a reaction to the environment, then the first question is, how do we make the environment child-friendly? Mm. So the parents, if I was counseling parents, I'd say, what stresses are in the family that the child is reacting to? What trauma do you as parents haven't resolved yet in your life mm. that you might be unwittingly passing on to your kids just as I pass it on to my kids? I'm telling you, I pass my trauma on to my kids because when I had small kids, I didn't know what I know now. And I didn't know myself. So I'm not blaming anybody. I'm saying is this is what happens. So in a school, when a child acts out, now, Roman, take this word acting out. When I say the word acting out, most people will hear in their mind's eye, they will see a kid who's obstreperous, oppositional, defiant, angry, aggressive, disobedient, that's not what acting out means. If you take the phrase acting out in a game of charades, 
you're not allowed to use words. What do you have to do? You act have to it act it out. If, if I came to your home hungry and I didn't speak your language and you didn't speak mine, if I wanted to show you that I was hungry, what would I have to do? Exactly. Yep. I'd have to act it out. In other words, acting out is a sign language. So when kids are acting out, they're giving us sign language because they don't have the words. Because we haven't taught them the words. So we have to understand, and what's being acted out is their pain, their anxiety, their fear, their anger, their needs not having been met. That's what's being acted out. So rather than suppressing the behavior, how about looking at what's being acted out? And how can I meet those child's needs? So that's the first approach I have to treating a child with ADHD. Medication, um, in the short term, if the it's like a fire hydrant, you know, like if the house is on fire, okay, use a fire hydrant. But that's not the answer to making a good home. It's yeah. by dousing it with water, you know. So I mean, in the short term, and especially if the child agrees and understands why. But no child should ever get the message that they're acceptable to the adults only if they're medicated. That's a terrible message to give a child. And yet that's what the schools do very often. The schools, teachers are not trained in trauma. They're not trained in understanding brain conditions. They're not trained in understanding behavior. They're not trained in understanding acting out. All they do is they try and control the behaviors. When I say all they do, I'm generalizing. I'm saying for the most part, that's mm -hmm. what happens. So instead of doing that, how about making the, ch the school child-friendly? Yeah. That child, we often say, only, this kid is only doing it for attention. Damn right. They need attention. They need the right kind of, they need the right kind of attention. Yeah, exactly. They need the right kind of attention. The trouble is, when kids don't get the right kind of attention, they'll go for the wrong kind of attention. They're acting out their need for attention. Now, do I punish them for it? Or do I say, hey, sweetheart, you really need my attention, don't you? And I'm going to volunteer you. My, you know, and there's all kinds of ways of dealing with this. There's all kinds of ways of understanding the child's behavior. That has nothing to do with trying to control the behavior. It has to do with giving the child conditions where they, they can change so they don't have to behave that way. Yeah. That doesn't mean catering to every demand. It doesn't mean, I want a cookie before dinner. That doesn't mean, okay, here, have a cookie. That's the wrong thing to do. But it also means not um, making the child wrong for wanting to keep before dinner. Right, right. The way of being, the, the way of being has to shift. Not so much what you're saying or doing, but just lovingly setting a boundary, for example. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know what's sad to me is I often I've joined a lot of ADHD support groups and some parent will vent and say, oh, my God, my child is so angry. And is anyone else's child angry? And he's always angry. And so I just comment. I go, what is he angry about? And what I get back is, well, he has ODD, <laughs> you know, and this just makes no sense. So let me talk to you about oppositional defined disorder. Yeah, please. It doesn't exist. Not, not only doesn't it exist. Even theoretically, it can't exist. Now, if my foot was broken, would it matter to me whether I was talking to you or not talking to you? Would my foot be less broken either whether I was talking to you or not? Nope. If I had a flu, 
would I have less flu if I was talking to you on the, on, on Zoom here or, or without sitting in my room alone? Nope. Okay. But if I wasn't in a room with you, could I oppose you? Um, not unless we're on a cell phone talking to each other or... Well, unless we're in a relationship, could I oppose you? If I was in a room by myself, could I oppose you? No. Okay, in other words, oppositionality is a matter of relationship, right? Mm, I see. Why are we looking at the relationship instead of looking at the child? Now, yep. now in, in my book on ADD and, and also in Hold On To Your Kids, I do talk about oppositionality. Oppositionality, what we call oppositionality, has a good reason to exist. Now, what's the word that kids start saying at the age of, age of one and a half or so? One and a half? Uh... Yeah. Everything is put on your shoes. No. 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 Yeah. No is the word. And we call that the terrible twos. <laughs> we call it the, the kid doesn't call it that. We call it that. Yeah. Because we don't understand it. But it is a reason. If you didn't know how to say no, would your yes mean anything at all? No. Before the yes means anything, you have to have a no. Hmm. Before I can figure out what I want, I have to figure out what I don't want. So that automatic no of the child is what my friend, the psychologist Gordon Neufeld, calls counter-will. Counter-will is the opposition to the will of another. And the reason we have counter-will is that we have, think of a small child, a one and a half year old, tiny little creature. How do they ever become a separate individual person in the face of the power of the adult world? Well, there has to be something inside them that supports that. Now, if you have a garden and there's rabbits coming in and if you had a little tree that you wanted to plant, in order to protect that plant, what would you do? You'd build a little rabbit fence. Yeah. That's what the no is. The child's no is the child's way of saying, I have to develop my own individual personality. So I'm going to start mm -hmm. by keeping you out a little bit so I can develop myself. Yeah. Yeah. No. The problem is, and anybody can try this. I mean, if you and I were in the same room, if I put my hand up like this and you put my hand up against yours, and if I pushed against would you actually do? Uh, Gabor, I just lost you there for uh, a second. But, you were... but if, if our hands were touching right now, and if yep. I pushed against your hand, what would you automatically do? Push back. That's exactly what you would do. So the more I push on you, the more oppositionality I'd get from you. Hmm. So it's the same with this oppositional defiant disorder. These kids who have ODD, they've been pushed on too much. So this counter will, this oppositionality has really magnified. But not only that, they don't trust the adult world because they've been hurt. Because, not because the parents meant to hurt them, but simply because the parents were stressed not attuned to the child. I mean, I think the biggest cause for what we call ADD is actually parents being too stressed, not 
lacking love, not lacking devotion, not lacking dedication, but lacking the calm presence to attune to the child. Mm. And when kids don't feel attuned with, they'll oppose you. They'll oppose you. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so opposite, what we call opposition defined disorder really has to do with the quality of relationship of the child with the adult world. You take the most oppositional child and you give them the attuned understanding, loving attention they need, mm -hmm. the oppositionally vanishes like that. It's mm -hmm. not a trait of the child, it's a function of the relationship. So now, it's now the problem is by the time they're diagnosed, and especially in teenage years, they're so cut off from the adult world that there's nothing you can tell them. Because they just don't listen to you anymore. And who they're listening to? Their friend. Yeah. Rather than, rather than the adult world. Like you, you went and uh, hold on to your kids, right? That was a big revelation for me when reading that. Yeah. Uh, I think as a society, as parents, nowadays we don't realize that uh, we're running after money or jobs or career or whatever, and we're not paying attention to our kids, and eventually they're sort of gone. We can't get to them. That's right. That's what happens. So, again, this ODD business, you, you diagnose the kids, so you think, no, you've explained something. You haven't explained anything. Like, like ADD doesn't explain anything. ODD doesn't explain anything. It describes things. But a description is not the same as an explanation. And to talk about ADD as a, or ODD or any of these Ds as, as sort of wired entities is to ignore the fact that the brain and the person lives and develops an interaction with the environment. Yep. And, and how we then change the environment in positive ways can positively impact the child. And the whole process will change. And a lot of people will tell you this. I mean, I know this. Um, a lot of, I mean, I mean, not, not to beat my own drum here, but amongst the books on ADD, mine is the, pretty much the only one that takes this point of view. Um, there might be some others, but I... I, there, I there's very that. few, yeah. There's maybe yeah. five or six books that attempt to at least say we're heading in that direction versus the common narrative. Yeah. yeah. So, but I can tell you that I have a lot of parents who told me that, you know what, read your book, change my attitude towards my kid. Now I understand where he's coming from. Within four weeks, it was a different kid. Wow. You know? And now, that doesn't mean that the child problems going on, ongoing. And then what you really want to do is help the child develop responsibility for the problems and the challenges that they face. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a goal. Like I, look, my losing things, it hasn't changed. You know, I, I, I can sit in one spot and lose something. I haven't grown out of it, mm -hmm. but I don't care. It's not a problem. It's only a problem as if beat myself up for it, you know? So um, if I can accept that, yeah, okay, the price of being me is that I'm gonna lose some things that every time I go on a trip, I'll, there's an electric toothbrush that'll end up in some hotel somewhere, you know? <laughs> so what, you know? Yeah. Um, but if I beat myself up about it, what a loser I am, what a terrible person, what an idiot. 
that's what the problem is. Yeah. And, and, and so we have an issue related to self-esteem. Um, so it, what you really have to change and what you want to help to develop in a child is that they develop, is that they relate to themselves in a positive way. Because these kids have a lot of strength, a lot of, they're very, they tend to be very sensitive, very uh, creative, sometimes incredibly mechanically adept, sometimes totally inept, but they're always going to have something going for them. Yeah. Intuitive, you know? So the question is how to relate to the issues, the challenges that you have in a positive way. And how do you build on the strengths and the talents that you have? I love that. And um, I know we're coming up on the hour. I just had two more questions and you can keep them as short or as long as you'd like. But one would be the effect of a label, right? Of calling a child disordered or as a lot of parents call them, my ADHD or and what kind of effects does that have on a child by itself? Well, that's, you know, nobody should be defined by any particular problem that they have. There's a lot more to any of us than any diagnosis. Like I've had depression, I've been treated for depression. But just to see myself as a depressive, what would that do for me? No, um, as an adult, and I was in my fifties when I was diagnosed, I welcomed the diagnosis because it helped me see things more clearly. In fact, really, until I was diagnosed, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have done some of the things I've done since. I, my first book, which is on ADHD, Scattered or Scattered Minds, I, I wrote that after I was diagnosed. Now I had a map to myself. For a child, um, I'd be very careful. I know that in schools, to get a certain kind of assistance, you have to have labels and you have to have diagnoses. That's a game you have to play. But careful how you look at your child. If you look at your child through the, through the lens of, um, through the lens of a disorder, you're really limiting your understanding of them. There's much more to them than their symptoms and their syndromes. So even when those syndromes fit, and even when those symptoms describe the child's functioning, that's not who they are. And if you see them that way, you're limiting, you're really, and you're limiting their own view of themselves. Mm. There's one thing I want to say, which is that a lot of people tell me, or not, not a lot of people, some people will know I, there was no stress in our family when the kids were growing up. And I've, I've yet to meet anybody where I didn't talk to them for five minutes and the stresses didn't come out. Yep. It's only that people are so used to stress, they think it's normal. Mm. And uh, that's the first point. The second point is these things are multi-generational in the, in, the, in the sense that stresses are passed on from one generation to the next. And very often when people become parents, the unresolved stresses from their own childhood will all of a sudden appear for them. Triggered yep. by having a child. <laughs> yep. So um, parents should not blame themselves ever because they always did their best. But it was really helpful for them if they do some self-reflection. Because the biggest change we can make for kids is to change ourselves. 
Mm. Yeah, that's actually great. We're, uh, my wife and I started writing the book that will go along with the project and it's three easy steps, although easy is crossed out. And it's uh, basically says first yeah. shift your perspective, two is heal your shit, and three is honor your child. And with that, we believe a child can grow up healthier than, you know, as an ADHD or um, last question is, what do you say to experts? I hear this a lot where somebody will say nutrition is the way to heal ADHD, nothing else, or neurofeedback is the way to do it, or reflex integration, or everybody sort of wants us to believe this is the thing you need to do. Yeah. So first of all, as I said before, all kinds of different reasons can show up as ADHD symptoms. So naturally, all kinds of different approaches will work. Something for one person, something for another person. I don't rule out anything. Now, who could argue with good nutrition? Right. You know, but you take a kid who's kind of skittish and not all that cooperative and try to make them eat the food you want them to eat. How much success they're gonna have? <laughs> it's gonna develop ODD. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck with that one. You know. Yeah. Now it's totally true as far as I'm concerned that junk food makes everything worse. I mean, but these kids love junk food. Why do they love junk food? Because it soothes their brains. Mm. And the junk food companies know that, by the way. Um, yep. and, you know, it's not even a secret. They actually they hire neuroscientists and chemists to figure out what exact combination of fat, sugar, and salt will most trigger the sweet spot, they call it. Mm, addiction, yeah. And, and, and so that, and, 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 the cell phone, and the cell phone companies, same thing. So when the kid hooks on junk food, they tend to be because it's, it's soothing. You say you're going to treat them through diet? Well, good luck. Yeah. Because, because what you have to do to force them to stop eating that way creates so much problems. So what I'm saying is, yes, bring in the nutrition, bring in neurofeedback for those kids that it's going to work for, but the essential basis is the relationship, the relationship, and the relationship. Mm. If you have a good relationship, the child will accept guidance from you. If the child feels seen, they will listen to you. They'll heed you. So no, no mechanical solution by itself can work in the absence of relationship. So that's the, and so that actually, um, the, there's an epigraph that, that I used, a, a quote that I used at the beginning of both scattered and hold on to your kids. And it's by, the spiritual teacher Krishnamurti, uh, who said that, um, um, gosh, I wish I had in front of me, but it's something like um, the the understanding of relationship is infinitely more important than a plan for any than than any plan of action. Says so that action without understanding of relationship will only breed conflict. Mm. So, whether you're going to go for neurofeedback, sure, give it a try. Whether you're going to try and improve your child's nutrition, of course you should, ADHD or not. I mean, who could, who could argue right. that? Right, right, right. Um, no matter what you're going to do, relationship is primary. Mm. 
and and for the relationship you have to understand the child you have to understand what's happening for them so that uh, you, you will need to be asking yourself what could be going on for the child right now for them to behave that way and you also have to understand yourself or what's happening for me right now because I know with, these kids are so sensitive. So with my daughter, I, I'd say, come to dinner. And she wouldn't come right away. So I'd say, come to dinner. Don't yell at me. I wasn't yelling, but there was tension in my voice, which her sensitive nature interprets as yelling. Mm. So am I talking to this child with patient, calm, um, attuned acceptance or am I being frustrated with them and am, I, and am I projecting that frustration onto them so when I say relationship you have to understand yourself and you have to understand, and, and you have to understand the child hmm. and based on that any technique you use it will have a much better chance of success Beautiful. Well said. I, I would say no further questions, Your Honor. Um, okay, that's good. Because <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> uh, well, Gabor, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you uh, all the best with releasing this book. I'm excited to get my own copy. And I just uh, want to acknowledge you for having a huge impact in the lives of so many people, not just ADHD addicts, but also myself as a as a creative that you inspire me to do better and to keep doing what I'm doing. So I thank you for that. That's and great, Roman. It's a real pleasure to speak with you and I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Gabor. Be well. You too. Bye-bye.